Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Between Resistance and Submission, a question from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. <coughs> it's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 4th, 2011. I recently read a book called Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Letters and Papers from Prison by the church historian Martin Marty. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor who was imprisoned for his resistance to the Nazis, including a plot to assassinate Hitler. After two years in prison, and just three weeks before the war ended, he was hanged at dawn on April 9, 1945, at the age of 39. Marty begins with the book's unusual birth as a collection of random letters, sermons, poems, and reflections written by Bonhoeffer from his 10-foot by 7-foot prison cell number 92 of Tegel Prison. They include censored letters to his fiancée Maria von Vedermeyer and to his confidant, former student, and eventual biographer Eberhard Bethke. Some uncensored papers were smuggled out of prison with the help of sympathetic Nazi guards. Still others were later discovered buried in gardens or hidden in roof beams by family and friends. Many papers were lost, and Bethke himself burned some before he was arrested in order to protect the identity of people. In a labor of love and painstaking scholarship, after Bonhoeffer's death, Bethke tracked down, collected, organized, and edited the papers into a book, which today we know as Letters and Papers from Prison. It's been published in numerous editions and translated into 20 languages. The new critical and definitive edition of 2010 by Fortress Press runs to 800 pages. Bonhoeffer could have stayed in the United States at Union Theological Seminary in New York, where he was a visiting professor, and he was pressured to do so. But he faced a moral quandary. In a letter he wrote to Reinhold Niebuhr, I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization might survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. The original 1951 German edition has the provocative title, Resistance and Submission. It comes from a question that Bonhoeffer asked himself in prison. He wrote, I've often wondered here in prison where we are to draw the line between necessary resistance to fate and equally necessary submission. In other words, what does resisting fate and evil powers mean? What does submitting to God's providence look like? 
Should a Christian will harm to her nation for the sake of the gospel? Or can one wish for national victory if it destroys the church or other nations? In the lectionary for this week, Scripture affirms that Yahweh intervenes not only in the lives of individuals, but in the affairs of nations. Sometimes he judges nations with what Jeremiah calls disaster upon disaster. Exodus 12 describes the institution of the Jewish feast of Passover that commemorates Israel's liberation from 430 years of bondage to slavery in Egypt. And liberation from oppression is always worthy of celebration by the saints. But Exodus also suggests that the emancipation for Israel meant subjugation for Egypt. Today we might say that the oppressed became the new oppressor, except that in this narrative, revenge was the act of God himself. In something like divine infanticide, God slays the firstborn of every Egyptian, from the highest in Pharaoh's house to the lowliest prisoner languishing in a dank dungeon, and even including the firstborn of Egyptian livestock. To punctuate his point, the writer adds in Exodus 12.30, There was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. And then, in a departing act of humiliation, the Hebrews plundered their Egyptian oppressors. Or consider the schizophrenic zeal in Psalm 149 for this week. The first half of the psalm describes dancing, singing, music, and praise to God. But in the second half of the psalm, tambourines and harps give way to swords and shackles. May the praise of God be in their mouths, in a double-edged sword in their hands, to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all his saints. I love the anemic understatement in the new Oxford Annotated Study Bible footnote to Psalm 149. It says, The dance was evidently of warlike character. Oh, yes, it was. Perhaps the enemies of the psalmist somehow deserve their humiliation. Maybe there's a mysterious divine providence at work in the rise and fall of nations. Or maybe you could read this as the normal but tragic rhetoric of ancient military conquest. Whoever laughed at the notion of poetry as a political act? For the psalmist, it was a short step from pious praise to religious rage. He glorifies the religiously righteous who brandish the scriptures in one hand and a sword in the other. Some people defend a theology of a warrior god who slays his enemies, like Peter Leithart in his book First and Second Kings from the year 2006. I prefer the view of Daniel Berrigan in his book The Kings and Their Gods from 2008, he suggests that texts like Psalm 149 reflect how the writer saw himself and his nation and how he wrongly thought that God saw his enemies. 
I'm uncomfortable with linking divine judgment and national disaster. It's one thing to affirm that God acts in the history of nations, but quite another to claim to know how, when, where, or why. We shouldn't wish divine judgment on any person or nation, even if it appears good and necessary. We should wish them God's shalom. When you imagine that God hates all the people you hate, then you can be sure you've created him in your own image. No, said the German pastor Martin Niemöller, who was also imprisoned by Hitler for eight years, it took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of my enemies. He's not even the enemy of his own enemies. What, should, what we should wish for every person and nation comes from this week's epistle. Paul borrows a passage from the Hebrew Old Testament to instruct the earliest followers of Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13.9, quoting Leviticus 19.18. The only debt we should carry, he says, is the never-ending debt to love your fellow human being. Loving your neighbor fulfills any and every other divine command. For genuine love, says Paul, does no harm to its neighbor. We're to love not only our neighbor, says Jesus, but even our enemy. Matthew 5:43-48. As a matter of principle, Quaker pacifism takes this to its logical extreme. Last week I read the book Quaker Writings and Anthology. It documents Quaker pacifism way back to the year 1661, and I quote, "All bloody principles and practices we as to our own particulars do utterly deny, with all outward wars and strife and fightings with outward weapons, for any end or under any pretense whatsoever. This is our testimony to the whole world. We need this Quaker reminder when we see how easily divine judgment becomes an excuse for human vengeance. As a matter of practice, though, it's scary to think what our world would be like if brave people like Bonhoeffer didn't risk guilt to resist evil. He never justified his actions. In his ethics, Bonhoeffer wrote, when a man takes guilt upon himself in responsibility, he imputes his guilt to himself and no one else. He answers for it. Before other men, he is justified by dire necessity. Before himself, he is acquitted by his conscience. But before God, he hopes only for grace. And so Bonhoeffer's question resonates today. How do we resist the evil forces of fate while submitting to the good providence of God? For books this week, I review Quaker writings in anthology, 1650 to 1920. The editor is Thomas Ham, New York Penguin Press, 2010, 370 pages.
Thomas Ham, professor of history at Earlham College, has collected 300 years of primary Quaker sources into an affordable and accessible single volume. A short introduction entitled The People Called Quakers, which I wish was 30 pages instead of only 13 pages, gives a brief overview of the Friends. The 50 selections document all the distinctive features of Quaker history, doctrine, practice, defenders, detractors, and divisions. The, the Quakers trace their history to the ordinary laity of England in the 1640s, and in particular to the vision of George Fox, 1624 to 1691. Fox articulated the ideas of direct revelation to a believer's inner spirit that bore equal authority to scripture and that came, as he said, without the help of any man, book, or writing. This inner light resides in every person, as one detractor fretted, quote, that all men in the world have in them a light sufficient to salvation, Turks, Indians, yea, such as never had or ever shall any outward means to reveal Christ to them. Then there's the disdain for any outward form, ritual, sacrament, or clerical office. Quote, being bred at Oxford or Cambridge was not enough to fit and qualify men to be ministers of Christ. Quakers were also famous for their forward thinking about Indians, the mentally ill, prisoners, and especially slaves and women. One of my favorite selections typifies the Quaker distinctive of the full equality and inclusion of women in ministry. Women speaking justified, proved, and allowed by the scriptures by Margaret Fells way back in 1666. John Woolman's influential journal has never gone out of print since it was first published in 1774. The first-person narrative by Levi Coffin provides a deeply moving account of his activities on the Underground Railroad. And the last section of the book documents Quaker pacifism back to the year 1661. Today, Quakers enjoy a good reputation, but 300 years ago, their simple lifestyles and refusal to pay tithes to the state church or to swear oaths led to severe persecutions as socially disruptive radicals. After reading this wonderful collection, I had a sense of gratitude for their unique gospel witness. The editor is Thomas Ham. The title, Quaker Writings, an Anthology, 1650 to 1920. For film this week, I review a title called Test of Faith, Does Science Threaten Belief in God, from the year 2009. The Test of Faith DVD is one part of a larger group of resources produced by the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion in Cambridge, England, with funding from the John Templeton Foundation. Other resources include the book by the same title, Test of Faith, Spiritual Journeys with Scientists, and a course with leader guides for small group discussions, also called Test of Faith. For further details, see www.testoffaith.com.
This DVD is 90 minutes long and addresses three general questions. First, in cosmology, it asks whether science and religion necessarily conflict, and whether the Big Bang makes God unnecessary. Second, it explores the nature of evolution, with special attention to given to theories of the young Earth and intelligent design. And finally, a third section explores genetics, neurobiology, and what it means to be made in the image of God with free will. The entire film is comprised of interviews with world-class scientists who are Christians, including Francis Collins of the Human Genome Project, Bill Newsom, Stanford neurobiologist, John Polkinghorne, the Cambridge physicist, and many others. Test of faith. Does science threaten belief in God? And finally for this week, for poetry, we've posted a very short selection by Shamus Haney, born in 1939. Haney won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1995. He was born in Northern Ireland, one of the oldest of nine children. The title of his poem is called Voices from Lemnos. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope in history rhyme. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 4th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.